Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined back in our traditional Google Hangout setup <laughs> by um, my, my longtime co-hosts at this point, Harvey Young of Boston University. Harvey, what's going on with you? I see, I think I saw from Twitter that you were recently in Japan, is that right? I was in Japan, saw a production of Carmen, the opera there. It was fantastic. Fantastic. In what language was that uh, opera? It was in French. Nice. Nice. With Japanese and English. Japanese subtitles. Super subtitles. subtitles. Fantastic. And was this a BU alum? There was a BU alum who directed it and then a number of BU uh, singers who were starring in it. Yeah. So I was there to cheer them on. Nice. Nice. And I'm joined also by Sarah Bay Jung of Bowdoin College. Um, Sarah, let me check in with your travel as well. I saw that you apparently spent part of your spring break in New York. Is that right? I was. I was in New York uh, just for a few days, kind of a, a tactical strike to mostly see family on this trip. So my, my nice. in-laws are all were mostly in the sort of greater New York area. So we were visiting with them. That's great. I have a very specific question, which is about that building called the Vessel. Oh, yes, or the the great shawarma. Yeah. (laughs) What? It looks amazing. I really want to see it. What is its function? Is it like public architecture? Is it a is it like a meeting space? What do you do there other than gawk at it? Uh, you do pretty much exactly what what I did, which is uh, you take pictures uh, of yourself and the building and of all the other people taking pictures of themselves and the building. Um, it's it's a it's a mile of stairs um, built around columns. So you basically walk up and down stairs, and then you can go around the views. This is in the new. New, uh, you know, uh, newly developed Hudson Yards that just opened. Um, uh, this piece and the, I, I'm embarrassed to say the architect's name is completely escaping me at the moment, but we'll, we can put a link to, there's a, a couple of nice articles ab- about it. Um, it's it's kind of like, it's, it's a little bit like the High Line. It's a piece of public architecture that's there to be experienced and, and seen and gawked at and you know, soon to be criticized and then derided, I'm sure, for, um, uh, and, you know, and I will, I will say that, uh, you know, what initially led me to is I follow a number of, of critical architects on, on Twitter. And so this came up in a not terribly favorable context of, of Hudson Yards and, and kind of what's happening um, in that area of the city. But, but as a, as a, it was a beautiful day and as a way to enjoy it and, and, and sort of experience that uh, piece of public art, I, I, I not uncritically, but I did enjoy it. I just I yeah. felt very guilty about my enjoyment. We can't no, you know, we can't we can't enjoy anything anymore. No. Um, so today we have um, uh, three fascinating topics. Excited to dig into these. We are going to talk about um, the ultra contemporary phenomenon of representations of slavery in New American drama. Um, among the three of us, we have seen collectively speaking uh, Susan Laurie Parks's um, White Noise, a new play at the Public Theater in New York. And Jeremy O'Harris's Slave Play, which ran at the end of last year at New York Theater Workshop. We read the essay, The Books That Wouldn't Die, by Lorraine Daston and Sharon Marcus in The Chronicle, um, a fascinating essay about a particular genre of academic text, um, and some surprises in that essay I'm excited to talk about. Um, and then finally, we went back to ontheboards.tv and all watched a stream of a piece of dance theater or dance performance by Big Dance Theater. Um, this was called Short Form. It was a performance from 2016 of several short pieces by Big Dance Theater. So we're going to talk about how that uh, landed on us. Before we get into those things, a few news items. Um, uh, young Jean Lee uh, won the very prestigious Wyndham Campbell Award. Um, uh, I noticed that she also wrote an op-ed recently for the New York Times on affirmative action and how it benefited her. So there's sort of a Young Jean Lee moment, another Young Jean Lee moment happening all around us. Um, I saw that uh, the new Trump administration budget again proposes eliminating the NEA. I don't know that this is even news at this point. I don't 
know that with the Democrats controlling the House that there's any prospect of that budget being passed. And they couldn't pass those nasty cuts to um, arts, federal arts funding, even when there was Republican control of Congress. So I don't know. It's it's out there. It's in the news. We can talk about it or not. Um, I'm just sticking uh, with Harvey's take on all of this, which is that yes. the NEA is too deeply embedded throughout the nation and that everyone will protect their local cultural institutions. And so I, I have so many other things I feel like to worry about in the in the news right now that I just I just you know, I just I just listened to the soothing tones of Harvey reassuring me that the funding will be there no matter what. And I'm like, OK, I'll just that's that's all I need. I'll just like sink into that and, and yes. ride it out. We can repost Absolutely. that um, HowlRound article that I wrote a couple of years ago on NEA funding. We should just post it every year that Trump is in office around this time and, and hang our hat on it because it's apparently you totally nailed it, Harvey. I'd like Harvey to record it and then I can play it as um, as evening listening to wind down at the end of a difficult day. <laughs> Why don't just we have just... him reassure me that everything will be OK with the arts in the United States? You can just listen to old editions of the podcast and listen to Harvey explain it to us for the first time like <laughs> 18 months ago or whenever it was. Oh, fair, fair. I'll just yeah. take that as a little excerpt, you know, put it yeah. on repeat. I have one other little news item here. This almost escaped my attention, but apparently Sarah Bay Jung is leaving Bowdoin College and going to York to take on a, a dean position. Is this true, Sarah? This is true. Yes. No, I, I'm uh, very excited. Uh, I have loved my time at Bowdoin, and I will miss my colleagues and, and my students here, but... Uh, I've been an admirer of York University for a while now, and and so when this opportunity came up, I just kind of couldn't say no. So I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity, and I'm enjoying this moment where uh, I have that to look forward to, but I have not yet made any mistakes. Um, So I'm really, like the next two months are this kind of golden golden period in which I have yet to screw up, and and then, then I'll officially start, and then that will end, so. It's it's true. I as the podcast becomes more and more administrative in its context, we can bond over experiences like when you're new in an administrative post, like everyone can be mad about what happened before, right? That there's some inter- indeterminate period of time when you can say like, "Hey, I just started. I don't know what I don't know why this is this way." Um, congratulations, Sarah. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I am excited for this um podcast to become one third more Canadian. I'm very excited. That we're, 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 we're international. We've now yep. become, we're about to be officially an international, international uh, we're gonna, podcast. We're going to blow up in the Canadian market. Yeah. And, and, and York University is a extraordinary sort of powerhouse in the area of theater and performance and the arts. Uh, it's one of my favorite universities, one of my favorite programs um, in, in the areas of theater and performance studies. And the fact that Sarah's joining that crew just makes it you know, even better, and its potential is unlimited. So, congratulations, Sarah. Thank you, thank you so much, Harvey. I really appreciate it. And um, and watch out, panel. Apparently, it's a little contagious around here. So, yeah, you know, I'll, the curse I'll, of the I'd, podcast. Uh, at any rate, let's dive right in to our topics. Um, we wanted to talk about um, slavery in New American drama. Um, two very significant um, African American playwrights, Susan Laurie Parks and Jeremy O'Harris have new plays, um, very much unlike each other, these plays, but like each other in that in a certain way, they bring um, the historical fact of slavery into a contemporary moment. Um, Harvey, you saw uh, White Noise at the public. Sarah saw White Noise as well. I saw a slave play. Um, Do you want to start us off with your impressions of, I don't know, of White Noise or of this phenomenon? Yeah, absolutely. What's interesting about this moment is that we have a return or a revisiting of the topic of slavery from a contemporary perspective. Uh, in both plays, you know, the the framing is sort of contemporary people, everyday people, present day folks uh, grappling with you know their anxieties, their concerns about race uh, through uh, a concerted effort to essentially role play slavery. Right, so within White Noise, it's uh, the protagonist of that play uh, who um, is so haunted by uh, experiences of racial profiling you know, that he feels like the way that they feels that the way to be protected is to be owned by his friend, uh, and that's the premise of that play. Uh, and then within Slave Play, you know, it's a series of couples, you know, who are 
essentially grappling, you know, with their relationships, uh, and they seek some form of slave role play, <laughs> essentially, uh, to find an inner truth about themselves and are thinking about race and society in the present day. Uh, and it's interesting that both plays premiered uh, and arrived in New York City uh, roughly, what, six months apart or so? Uh, and, and that's of interest. Uh, but I did not see Slave Play. I've only read it. Um, and I've seen, obviously, White Noise. What are your thoughts, panel, on the actual presentation of Slave Play? Yeah, the, it was um, it was a fascinating play. I saw this in December at New York Theater Workshop. Um, you know, I very much agree with your characterization of this notion of role-playing slavery. It, it would seem that this is a distinct way of um, addressing the issue from the way that other uh, African-American playwrights have dealt with, you know, the lingering memory or the lingering trauma or the lingering, you know, social relations inaugurated by slavery. And instead you have in both of these plays, very concrete ways of making the the behavior of slavery or the explicit uh, uh, relationships between white and black people under slavery manifest and tangible again on stage. Um, I really liked uh, Jeremy O'Harris's play. It's it's very controversial. There was a you know petition to close it down. It's received a lot of criticism on uh, social media for putting on stage um, really racist language, very exploitative uh, sexual um, behavior, um, etc. Um, I'll just say that you know, from the perspective of how slavery sort of manifests on stage, from the first moment, um, you're you're in the theater, and at least in the New York Theater Workshop production, the stage is just a, a a wall of mirrors. So you see yourself, and you see all of the other audience members around you, and then above the back of the audience, there's this long um, sort of panoramic painting of a plantation, and so. That, along with, if I recall, kind of green astroturf on the stage itself, gives you the sense of, okay, we are in, we're on a plantation. We are in that world. And this this will be a spoiler. So those of you who are looking forward to reading or, or watching the play without knowing this, um, uh, you can fast forward, you know, for a while. Um, the first few scenes are of uh, uh, you know three sets of couples. Both um, all all the couples are uh, a one white person, one black person, different configurations, um, and they're acting out these heightened sort of sexual situations that incorporate um, racist language and, and these very severe power dynamics. And they're speaking in a kind of you know antebellum dialect. Um, and playing out these sort of plantation roles, and then it's only at certain moments in the at the ends of those scenes and going into the sort of second act that you realize that in fact this is a contemporary moment, and these people are engaged in what um, Harris calls antebellum sexual performance therapy. So these are contemporary people who are on some plantation setting, but it's the current day, and they're you know dealing with the dysfunction in their relationships by acting out plantation scenes. So I would just say that I think I, from what I know about White Noise, this is not the same relationship. In White Noise, I believe it's a sort of relatively realistic setting and contemporary setting, and then something happens that brings slavery back into it. In Slave Play, you're, you're sort of in a kind of gone with the wind feeling situation until the contemporary world sort of breaks in. And Sarah, what was your take on White Noise? Um, so what I was really struck by, and, and again, I've seen White Noise, but but only read Slave Play, is that the the kind of key inciting incident for both of these is uh, is a bodily failure. So the kind of key uh, incitement in, in in Slave Play is the sexual dysfunction among among these you know among the between the couples among all three all three couples. Right? There's like this like a, a, a sexual dysfunction that, that they're trying to resolve by, by kind of going back and, and revisiting and replaying these racist right, tropes of, of, of slavery and, 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 and enacting those as a way of working through them. And that's essentially what is at the core of, of white noise also. We're introduced first to a character 
um, Leo, um, played to my mind really wonderfully by David Diggs. I thought I thought the the performances in the in the play were really outstanding. Um, whose fundamental problem is insomnia, and um, as you might expect from from any play by Susan Laurie Parks, all of the language and words that are associated with this play have multiple layers of puns and histories. So. The idea of of a critique of wokeness being situated in a character with insomnia um, is something that you know the initial reviewers have have highlighted and certainly is there in in many many presents and of course the the titular white noise refers both to the kind of racist environment in which Leo exists, but also to the specific noise machine that he is given by his friend Ralph in order to help him get to sleep. So it's, I was sort of struck by the idea that in both plays, racism is a social condition that has ubiquitously um, compromised and invaded the bodies um, of uh, of society and, and is now manifesting itself as as literal physical symptoms. And this kind of aligns with recent research in terms of the the notion that trauma is to some extent hereditary and, and maybe biologically passed down um, um, as well as socially absorbed. And the evidence of the sort of physical and physiological stress of racism, microaggressions, uh, sort of daily life, again, seeming to be kind of in the background, i.e. the white noise of contemporary culture. So I, I just find it really interesting that that um, that in some ways, like both plays really seem to be grappling with uh, a kind of physical failure in the moment. It, it seems like one of the challenges in this contemporary moment is to is how to find the language to talk about racism and prejudice uh, and bias. And it seems to me that a retreat to or perhaps an imagination of of this historical past moment, you know, these ideas of slavery offers a way to um, you know, make discussions uh, and the conversations and uh, the prejudices uh, that circulate around race a bit more legible. Um, and what emerges out of these sort of psychic imaginations of playing the slave and role play you know, is really a meditation for me on, on, on how power operates. Uh, so you can see how uh, power kind of corrupts these relationships in some ways. Um, certainly, really, it corrupts the relationship between. Um, I forget that it was a Leo. Was that, was that the protagonist, Sarah? Leo and yeah. So it's Leo, and then and then his partner is uh, Don, and then their friends are Ralph and Misha. Right. So so, you know, so that changes their relationships, and then certainly you see that uh, within a slave play. You know, where it's like those uh, partnerships, you know, are changed, you know, based upon who has power um, and authority over the other, uh, and that's quite interesting. And 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 how that then slips into uh, concerns in which power dynamics also lead to uh, conversations and 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 uh, harassment and aggressions related to um, sex, right? Um, you know, so you know, there's a protective move that's made by Susan Laurie Parks within White Noise in which one of the stipulations in their agreement for ownership is that uh, Ralph cannot, um, um, you know, command or, or, or have any sort of sexual relationship with Leo. You know, of course, there's an asterisk there within the plot, <laughs> you know, point that we'll leave, we'll leave out there. Uh, and then certainly within a Slave Play, as panel noted, like, you know, th- these ideas of sex and and, and the possibilities of sexual violation as well uh, are explored, you know, and that's interesting to me in terms of how you know audiences and playwrights, you know, quickly associate because history reveals this to us. It's a truth, you know, that when there's a power differential and power dynamic, you know, often sexual exploitation can occur. Both of these plays, and again, not having seen White Noise, they seem to focus heavily on um, the presence or the fact of well-meaning liberal white people and the contemporary relationships between, um, you know, these black people and white people and white people who are not, who are, you know, trying and sort of, you know, want to want to be good and don't want to be racist, but still live in a, in a racist world. That combination of the sort of staging of white-black relationships and the sort of extremely challenging and provocative nature of the um, sort of facts of slavery brought back into the situation makes me wonder if this is kind of a new, a new move for African American dramatic literature. I mean, I 
and again, my touchstones when I'm trying to sort of make sense of these plays in his in this sort of theater history context, I think about the Black Arts Movement. Um, I think about um, uh, Adrian Kennedy. I think about Amiri Baraka, and these are from a different historical moment. They also, you know, their plays will feature the sort of problems of white, good intention, you know, well-intentioned white people as well, but it's a different formula. So I don't want to make too much of these two plays with their similarities and say, aha, there's like this new moment um, in literature. But I wondered, Harvey, if you had thoughts on, I don't know, other, um, or Sarah, like other, you know, black playwrights who have dealt with similar problems or similar configurations of contemporary life and history. Does this seem to be something new? Does it remind you of particular other efforts? I mean, there's a, there's a through line here um, in that I don't think that either contribution is, is necessarily new um, in terms of radically shifting uh, the framework. Uh, because if you think about even, you know, Amir Baraka's Dutchman, like you know, the, the concept there is you know supposedly there is a a well-meaning, <laughs> well-intentioned uh, co-passenger uh, you know with um, Clay, uh, and 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 indeed she's not right. Ultimately leads to his downfall. Um, well, she is named like Lula after all. Lula, right? absolutely. Like, so she uh, reminds us of Lulu and Lulu or Lola Lola, right? In Blue yep. Angel as well. Um, you know, so you have you have that you know in terms of this. Uh, figure who's complicit in the downfall of that individual. Uh, if you think of of you know sort of Bruce Norris writing about you know how we could only play Lindner in uh, A Raise in the Sun again, this supposed to be the sympathetic white character who you know, is ultimately complicit in in maintaining uh, a level of racism and actually quite explicit racism in that case. Uh, so it's it's so black theater has again and again engaged these topics and these issues, and even within the work of Susan Laurie Parks, you know there is this. This preoccupation, right, uh, with uh, the role that sort of society has played uh, to disadvantage uh, black characters. So think about in the blood, you know, where you have um, the protagonist in that play constantly being abused by welfare or the doctor or whoever else. Uh, so it's it's in that conversation, it's in that vein. Uh, but I think that the explicit treatment of of slavery and the idea of role playing slavery uh, is something that's that's pretty new. I mean, obviously, other playwrights have done the same thing. Um, you know, but the fact that it's becoming a heightened point of conversation and that it's becoming more of a realistic staging, you know, as opposed to what Brandon Jacob Jenkins did in terms of restaging the blackface troupe, for example, in Neighbors. You know, so I think that that is a point of departure for contemporary theater. There is a way in which I think both of these plays seek to um, literalize the embodiment and, and reenactment of slavery on on stage in a way that uh, I think a lot of drama, including that of Susan Laurie Park, strikes me as as more metaphorical and more clearly representational. And so, in some ways, working within the artifice of 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 theater, but at the same time, I mean, and this is what it seems to me sort of looking in from the outside, but reading responses to and, and a lot of the antagonism that slave play received, right, um, from from general public, among others, right, on on Twitter and things like this, um, that it was it was in, in part the lack of that kind of representational sheen and metaphorical filter that became really difficult to to for people to understand and um and to accept and and drove a lot of the anger and and animus against the play and against the theater and and ultimately really against against Harris himself i mean i think i i, I do not envy him um that the notoriety that that the play brought um and so it's just i think that's a that's an interesting shift and at the same time in terms of susan laurie parks uh I think this is probably one of the most realistic plays that she's written. I mean, by by a by a large margin. I find that turn for her really interesting um, in how she's grappling with you know actual sets and you've got you know realism and, and elements of naturalism on stage. You know, so when the characters go bowling, there's like oh look, there's a bowling alley and <laughs> yes. and bowling balls and bowling shoes and bowling shirts. You know, I mean, which is just like and and. And it's, you know, they're bowling, they're at, you know, uh, which I think is a really interesting move, um, you know, for someone who, you know, uh, you know, d- worked through these ideas in many ways with, with something like the America play. Yes. 
where it all becomes kind of metaphorical. That's true. Yeah, they, that you know, for for Susan Parks's work, this is indeed like the most realistic and and in some ways the le- the least poetic, you know, of you know of of her pieces. And I can see how in both cases, you know, for Susan Parks, the critique could be. Yeah, that's similar to the confessions that exist in you know some of our other pieces, whether it's uh, Venus or In the Blood. Uh, there's moments where each character gets to tell his or her perspective and share it with the audience, uh, and you know that's a place where sympathy um, and some level of empathy can be you know, sort of directed toward these characters, so that there's not one person with whom everyone identifies, uh, which I think is a bit more problematic when you're like, what happens when you become sympathetic for the white man who purchased her, his friend, <laughs> you know, and then exploited him in some ways. Uh, and certainly I suspect that some of the controversy tied into slave play, uh, you know, can uh, connect to this concern that uh, you're creating a sense of pleasure and enjoyment in the audience, you know, through the abuse and the power differential that was the basis of human captivity. Uh, so how can you sort of revel and find joy or pleasure, um, within quotes, you know, for those who are not looking at my hands, um, you know, in this moment, um, you know, under the guise of supposed critique, right? So I could understand how that could be something that's controversial in both cases. But it's also why the topic of slavery is so interesting and, and why these two plays are worthy of discussion. Indeed. Well, why don't we move on um, to uh, an essay that was published in the Chronicle of Higher Education last week. It's called The Books That Wouldn't Die. It's by Lorraine Daston and Sharon Marcus. Um, And it is about a a genre of academic work uh, that we are all familiar with. Um, Sarah, rather than having me sort of give the synopsis, do you want to give the sort of sense of what this article um, is about and your reactions to it from a theater and performance studies point of view? Sure. So this is a, a, an, an essay um, for the Chronicle, um, which is very much kind of in the in the house style of, of provocative meditations on an academic field uh, to academia writ large. Um, and it deals with texts that uh, have expanded and, and explored and kind of transgressed their own disciplinary borders. So the, the authors refer to them as, 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 um, as, as zombies or, or as undead text. Um, and this idea that these were, were major books in their, in their initial publication and became uh, f- even foundational to the field in some instances and then were dismissed or marginalized or kind of absorbed into the, the discipline um, uh, from which they emerged, but somehow like continued to have a second life beyond in, in, other, in other disciplines. And the authors describe starting this project by kind of asking people for examples and how readily everybody could kind of come up with examples from their fields. Um, what's interesting, or what I was sort of struck by is, is, and they don't really talk about it uh, as a specific point in the essay, but is, it's, is that really all of these, all of these works, um, well, one of the things they point to is that all of the works sought to have a public audience or a, a bigger impact beyond a kind of discipline. And they, the fact that they all come out of, or many of them come from, from uh, you know, the middle decades of the 20th century, I, I think is really interesting. And it, it reminds me of other similar kinds of either laments or, or happy dances, I suppose, that people have done around the death of the public intellectual, right? That, you know, as academics become more focused and more specific, it also has a certain relationship to empiricism mm-hmm. and to the role of empirical research in, in these fields. So the kind of the era of the grand idea that was rhetorically defensible, but perhaps not uh, empirically defended or uh, had not yet been subject to positivist analysis um, also seems to be kind of part of the 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 genre that they're that they're pointing to um, but I was also just struck by the um, by this idea of of in terms of theater and performance studies how how many texts and and I will say like you know zombie or undead texts theater and performance studies absorbs from other disciplines but how few of our texts seem to migrate and 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 successfully implant themselves in other in in other fields even when they are directly relevant and this is you know I'll I'll sort of 
digress briefly just to say like I'm constantly aware of like media studies scholarship that is is working from very similar ideas and existing scholarship in theater and performance studies and yet does not acknowledge it probably because they don't the authors just don't know about it but it it always kind of irks me it's like you should really go and look at these other things because people have already said that and they've already done some of that work for you anyway so that was that was my initial reaction what did you think panel um yeah, I had I, I really liked the essay. It the the surprise that I spoke of earlier was that by the time you get to the end of the essay, even though they've been introduced as undead zombie, thoroughly refuted texts, that the authors are actually they like them. They <laughs> they want to know why we don't have more of these, and and suggest at the end that maybe we should have more of these um, in spite of their faults. So. You know, the, uh, Sarah mentioned the list of, or, or the, the the sort of attributes of the genre. Um, some of the examples that are cited include Irving Goffman's presentation of self in everyday life and Clifford Geertz's The Interpretation of Cultures, which I confess I continue to assign and, and, <laughs> and read and think about. Um, um, she also mentions uh, uh, The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir and, and Imagined Communities by um, uh, Benedict Anderson. So it's, it's, it runs the range of, of disciplines but in the humanities and, and humanistic social sciences. But Sarah's right that some, a lot of these titles are things that I was assigned in graduate school. Um, and, you know, I, I guess the... the I don't know. I have a lot. I have several reactions to this. Um, one is the account of the explanation of why these don't exist. Sarah mentions empiricism and, and positivism. The authors also talk about historicism. This sense that you know, as disciplines have become more disciplined, more professionalized, um, and as they, on their account, the humanities sort of felt the encroachment of sociology. Um, and other sort of more, you know, scientific disciplines that they that we have become intolerant of sort of big sweeping, you know, all expansive interpretations that draw broad evocative comparisons between unlike things. Um, and this makes sense to me, but I also think that's part of the legacy of post-structuralism. But I think that they're right that these books are memorable and refuse to die because they do sort of capture and sell a big idea in a rhetorically sophisticated way. For me, I was thinking about what is a zombie undead uh, text within performance studies? And I struggled. I was scratching my head, sort of wondering. Uh, and the one I came up with, uh, my best guess is Richard Schechner's Performance Theory. Uh, because it, it, it's a book that yeah. has swagger, right? It's a book that aims to define performance studies and performance theory for field at large. Um, you know, when one thinks about performance theory in 2019, you don't automatically go to, you know, what's outlined in that book. Uh, you know, there's many things that have been inspired by it and have sort of pushed Richard's ideas, you know, forward. Um, you know, but it's still a text that really brings together and sort of centers performance studies as a discipline. So for me, that exists as my idea of what a zombie text, you know, in a good way is within performance studies. Uh, have you two thought about what might be a zombie text within uh, our disciplines of theater and performance studies? Well, I'm inclined to agree with you about performance theory in, in part because it is, you know, sort of thinking about the texts that cross disciplinary lines. Uh, I, I, I think that's definitely one of them. Um, you know, I, I will confess that my other response uh, to reading this uh, was to be like, oh, oh, I, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to like that book. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, totally, totally. Oh, well, oops. Um, you know, it's like when you mispronounce a, a scholarly word you've read 25 times but have never said out loud in public and then some, you know, well-meaning person corrects your pronunciation and you're like, oh. Oh, I didn't know that's how that was pronounced, right? So that was also my my sort of response. It's like, oh, I, I kind of liked that book. Oh yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's so. the, the the genre is part of the genre profile that we get is that these have been refuted by specialists, and so within, you know, the sort of cutting edge of the academic fields, you're not supposed to write your, you know, in 2019, you're not supposed to write your dissertation resting foremost on concepts from you know, uh, Richard Schechner's essays of the 1970s and 80s. 
though these ideas have been thoroughly absorbed into our field. And performance studies is also, you know, it's an interdiscipline. It's a, it's a cobbling together of influences from the study of dramatic literature and cultural anthropology and sociology and, and you know, psychoanalysis and all the theories. So I think, you know, every field I'm sure thinks it's exceptional, but unlike English or history or, um, I don't know, classics or other other disciplines where you have, like, rather... Um, uh, I don't know, clear and established uh, disciplinary standards and guidelines, even though there are multiple standards within those fields. In performance studies, it's a little bit more of a kind of Wild West atmosphere, I think, and, and always has been. And I think we're more um, uh, hospitable to experimentation and finding what we think might be valuable out of you know, otherwise, out of ideas that are otherwise considered to be um, outdated. But I think I think performance theory is a good example. When you read those essays carefully, and you know, you re you recognize there are sort of problems of scholarly <laughs> substantiation for some of the arguments, um, but they do coin these really fabulous concepts that are re remain part of our critical vocabulary. Yeah. yeah. Or sometimes I I feel like we do the the opposite, you know, which is, and this is, I think, a failure of our of our field at times, which is to not connect all the dots that you know exist between the classic text and the person who's writing an article or book in this moment. And what I mean by that is that you know sometimes when you're looking at you know citations and notes, uh, bibliographies, you find that there is a reference to the earliest instance of an engagement with a concept. And then the scholarship that existed between that, you know, and the present day just disappears. Uh, and then it might be an engagement with the book that came out or the article came out last year. Uh, and it's missing a chance to stitch together, you know, a decade, two decades or more of, of critical thinking, you know, in an yeah. area. You know, and I feel like we're, we're especially susceptible to that within a pretty young discipline, right? Because in which like, the founding figures of our fields um, are in many ways still actively working you know as faculty members they're just beginning to retire as well uh, so i think that we sometimes uh just don't do the work we don't put in the the, the labor uh to uh, go from past to present uh and instead we just you know you know quick the you know the, quick the re, press the rewind button the, the, the rewind button <laughs> you know yeah and then engage yeah. classical text and then go, go to the present so that's what i would like to sort of push people because i fear that you know we're zombie texts you know, you know my fear is that a, a classic text becomes a zombie text when we don't actually do the labor of maintaining that earlier text relevance into the present all right <laughs> so we all three saw a stream of big dance theaters short form. Um, this is on our favorite website. Can I say that's the podcast's favorite website? It's my favorite uh, source for um, great video streams of exciting performance work on the boards.tv. We watched um, uh, short form, which was performed at the Long Center for Performing Arts in Austin, Texas in 2016. Um, I picked this and, and suggested that we watch it because I'm a fan of Big Dance Theater. Um, Big Dance Theater is uh, a, a dance company, the, the artistic directors of which are Annie B. Parson and Paul Lazar. Um, they have been highly significant in sort of downtown New York avant-garde theatrical aesthetics, though in my mind they sort of are kind of on or off the radar of, of people who otherwise know about a lot of um, fixtures of postmodern theater. So people who know Richard Foreman or um, Mabu Mines or, or the Worcester Group will often have heard of Big Dance Theater but not seen their work. And I was lucky enough to see one of their most, one of their best pieces way back in, I think, 1999. This piece was called Another Telegraphic Thing, and it was a combination of text from a Mark Twain short story called The Stranger and f transcripts of recorded audio surreptitiously taken from commercial auditions that Paul Lazar had been on. So they do that sort of postmodern thing where they'll combine like completely incongruous material, but it's always stitched together with just really excellent 
um, an exciting dance and choreography. And that's one thing that I think both sets out, sets the company apart and also makes them harder to categorize or harder to know because I think people think, oh, this is dance and I'm not into dance. Um, we watched short form, which was a bunch of small pieces put together. Um, uh, I can say a little bit about the details of what they are, but I'm, I'm curious to know what, what you guys thought having watched this stream. Harvey, <laughs> Harvey had a feeling about it. Oh, um, what what can I say? Um, I wasn't your favorite thing. It, 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 it was not my favorite thing I've seen recently. I, I, I think I can say that. Um, how should I put it? It's it's episodic, and the sort of fairly brief segments, moments, movements, um, I thought made for an engaging change of pace. And I'm struggling. I'm struggling to, to, to it's actually okay. say what You didn't I, have to like it. I'm sure they're not going to listen to this, so it's fine. No, I, I, it, I, I had, it, unfortunately, I watched We'll make sure it we tag it, them all over their social media accounts. No, unfortunately, I watched it in a streamed manner and I and I and I feel as though if I were in the room with all other distractions taken away from me and I could focus entirely and only you know, on the work that was presented before me you know I would have been riveted uh, but unfortunately I, I didn't access it in that manner yeah, yeah. Sarah what do you think cool. <laughs> <laughs> um so I can't remember I saw I can't remember what the title of the of the big dance theater piece it was that I saw it's got to be over 10 years ago I'd have to go back I, I tried finding like an old program in my notes or whatever but I, I couldn't do it anyway um, I I you know they're they're kind of my shtick right I mean I totally I totally buy in I'm like oh yeah no give me the weird pop culture historical literary reference mashup um, I like the kind of wry deadpan commentary around uh, sentimental texts and stories and you know bits and pieces of, of Americana um, uh, you know I uh, like I that's just that's totally my jam um, I thought some of the individual dancing is really quite amazing and uh, and it, you know their stuff always kind of reminds me that no matter how weird something is watching trained bodies work with focus and, and attention and deliberation is always its own kind of uh, aesthetic pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. There's just like, there's just something about watching people who have spent so much time and energy training to do particular things. It's like, you know, I'll watch dancers walk across a floor. I mean, in fact, I have watched dancers walk across a floor and, um, and find that really, um, really quite, quite riveting. What I thought was interesting about this piece in particular is that it's a it's kind of a compilation like highlights from and so it serves also as an explicit uh, documentation uh, historicizing of their own of the of the company's work and um, one of the other shows I saw two shows when I was in New York one of the other shows was um, uh, 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 what was it the is the b-side i'm trying to remember the name of the guy who did it eric berryman um b-side um and the way that he reperforms uh a, a record a, an lp vinyl lp from the 1960s of song work songs and stories um collected from the the texas penal system by folklorist uh bruce jackson um also a former colleague at suny buffalo um, in the english department there and my former teacher at, yo, there you go. I figured that you must have had some contact with Bruce. Um, anyway, and so it was interesting having seen that piece also as a form of documentation and reperformance um, through media and comparing that to what, what Big Dance Theater is doing by reperforming their pieces, but also reperforming it in a context for documentation and video and a replay of the, of, of the media level. And so, so whereas... You know, I, I can totally appreciate the focus and the attention that one gives a live, you know, performance. Um, in some ways, the recording nature of it felt even more kind of fitting with the 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 ideas of the piece that they were presenting, which is here's a kind of highlight reel, you know, best of album uh, kind of you know uh, compilation of, of previous work that I for me made it also really interesting. Yeah, I, I really liked the last piece which was the most substantial piece called goats so it is a kind of it, it's a bunch of short pieces i 
I confess I wasn't as taken with the first three pieces, though though one of them called Short Ride Out is a solo dance for one male dancer, which I thought was really gripping and beautiful. Um, the Goats is adapted from a an Austrian folktale called Heidi from 1881. You, you say that like you didn't grow up reading Heidi, panel. Did <laughs> I, did, you, I, like, I didn't. I'm like, Oh my gosh, you were, well, you were never, I guess you were never no. like, you know, a middle school girl because those of us who were, at least a good many of us, like read Heidi obsessively. And so this was the same Heidi and the goats, this all. Oh, and stru- Clara the- and Peter and <laughs> oh, the fresh air and the Har- fantasy Harvey. of the grandfather. Oh my gosh. I'm like, I, I- really hope some of our like listeners are, 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 are revving with me in this like reclaiming of Heidi, right? Well, like- now I feel like I might have gotten a whole different level of pleasure from it if I had known Heidi. I'm aware of there being a thing called Heidi, but I just never was exposed to it. Harvey, do you know Heidi at all? I do Is not this- know Heidi. No. Okay, so we don't know Heidi. But we now we know Heidi because this piece, is there's four performer or there's five performers one of them is sort of a director and it is this beautiful um bizarre oftentimes hilarious kind of exquisitely put together mess where the piece you're watching has these interludes where the director figure is just sort of like walking around as if she's sort of in a I don't know, has some sort of aphasia going on and doesn't seem to understand what's happening and is complaining about all these details. And then the piece sort of snaps into into focus for minutes at a time. And there's there's a lot of sort of like hallmarks of what I think of as being kind of downtown Worcester group in, influenced work where they're they're doing fun things and playing with the live mics. They're doing lip syncing. They're putting in some voiceover recordings at the time. Um, there's a lot of sort of chaos or seeming chaos that's actually like very meticulously assembled and alternately hilarious and sort of striking in its in its motion and that's what i remember my impression being of another telegraphic thing was just a kind of combination of a you know a, a giddy um playing with these decontextualized texts together with um you know uh, I, I don't i don't know like a like a really serious artistry, but not the kind of self-seriousness that you get from the Worcester group. And I, I will, I, at Worcester group pieces, I, I will often laugh. I find them kind of hilarious and, and I think I get them and, and appreciate them and don't take them too seriously. But with big Dan, with, with Annie B. Parson and Paul Lazar, you feel like there's a real permission and invitation to laugh at the silliness of what they're doing, as opposed to treating it like some sort of, I don't know, uh, holy manifestation of, of, of creativity so that i give i give goats a big thumbs up i give the other pieces kind of a yeah good yeah but you can you can watch it for five bucks if you go to on the boards.tv and you should yes um yeah i mean for me figuring out what i thought about it and obviously like (laughs) this is something that we face as performance scholars historians and critics it's like sometimes there's things that we love and they speak to us and criticism flows, right? And then there's other ones in which uh, you may not immediately connect with it. It doesn't sort of, you know, match the rhythm of your you know, heartbeat, I guess you might say. Uh, you know, but you, you still understand what's happening, you appreciate what's happening. And, you know, for me, I think that, you know, what I found sort of worthy of sort of thinking through post-viewing Right, we know it was indeed this sort of the, the the difference in voices and tone in terms of the presentation. Right, so there's moments of of sort of stark direct address, you know, where the performers are are are, are, are they're either reading or they're speaking directly at the audience, and you can get the sense that if you were in the room, there's this heightened sense of intimacy, right? You know, and then that you know is juxtaposed with a moment of dance where there's this deep immersion uh, in the in the performance where it's like you know you don't exist necessarily as an audience member uh clearly there's an attention to um you know a, a framing which i'm now learning from, from sarah's comments uh offers some uh, uh sense in terms of the past performances that are then reappearing on stage so it offers a sense of history there uh you know so i can see this this convergence of many varying 
differently sat- you know, differently satisfying, varyingly satisfying pieces. It, uh, and I, I'm trying. I'm not sure I'm the trying. listeners can tell from the audio, but Harvey's physicality is just of like really trying to find something I'm, nice he could say I'm about searching, this piece. But this is this is what we do. You know, we, it's okay. it's we, true. we we when there's that much effort into a piece, you want to be able to appreciate yeah. it, put a spotlight on it, even if you don't necessarily. Um, want to experience it 10 more times. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, to recap, Harvey loved short form, run out and see it. Um, no, but you're right. You're right. You got you to gotta appreciate it. Um, appreciate the incredible work that went into it, even if it's not your thing, even if it's not your, even if it's not your favorite thing. I'm, I'm still stuck on the fact that you guys didn't like grow up reading Heidi. Like I, I, I think of that as like so, but maybe it's a, I, I really, I wonder if it's like a girl boy thing. You know, was like, the music? Did, did, was the did music you guys not read Little Women? Also, was that not part of your no, like fundamental? I, I, I knew it existed. But <laughs> All I right, I think this it. is. I think this is. Yeah. No, I'm like I'm kind of shocked. Like I and and see if you don't really know and you haven't read and engaged with Heidi as a concept, like then the whole joke about the braid. Right, that she puts on and takes off, like that is going to be meaningless to you because, like, yeah. like the, that is a that is a particular kind of thing, particularly for those of us who were either blessed or cursed with with long hair that our mothers um, did various intricate things to every morning. <laughs> I mean, not not Which clearly, I guess, is not really your guys's thing. But not knowing Heidi, I was definitely aware of a kind of coherent like alpine kitsch thing going on and the braids and the germanism the germanic yeah for sure quality you know goats and there's some plaid and i i don't know i i I appreciated it uh without all of that context um so listeners we've reached the the portion of the podcast that we call drafts drafts are our incomplete thoughts our fancies our inspirations um uh i don't have a really good draft i'm i've got a few bad candidates for ones so i'm not gonna go first go um, for it i'm gonna oh okay um all right so the reason i'm reluctant to do this one is it will sound as though i'm trying to like brag about how i'm a martial artist now but i have recently gotten into brazilian jiu-jitsu as part of just a kind of 2019 uh fitness and and you know, uh, wellness regime for myself but i've started going to brazilian brazilian jiu-jitsu classes uh and it's the thing I want to talk about is the fascinating history of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because it's it's created by a pair of brothers in Brazil, Carlos and Helio Gracie, and Helio Gracie's sons and their extended family are all these um, extremely uh, uh, well-practiced um, martial artists and fighters, and they've done very well in mixed martial arts, et cetera, et cetera. The thing about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, though, that I has been on my performance studies mind though is that part of the origin story of it was that Helio Gracie um, as a young man learned about Japanese jiu-jitsu and judo from a Japanese man who was in Brazil and he learned about it apparently after meeting him at a circus so that fact to me is indicative of a really significant and actually kind of obvious point about martial arts and and fighting sports in general which is that they're they're show business there's it's not that it's not a legitimate martial art and way to handle yourself physically um but that the the history of it is all tied in with these sort of exhibition fights and these challenges where the gracies would challenge anyone in any discipline to fight them and to me the idea of this sort of you know perhaps apocryphal but legendary first encounter that gave rise to this martial art in a circus setting in a sort of popular entertainment setting is really revealing there's there's not any way to sort of fully separate the pure you know fighting art or or sort of physical discipline from um theater right from from a kind of showbiz and a a business model and a um a, a way of thinking about what you're doing as being for spectators as well so follow my progress on Instagram. I'm, I'm going to try to get a blue belt. My only goal is to get a blue belt, and it seems like it's probably a long way away from me at this point. I, I think that's the most wonderfully uh, geeky uh, uh, draft we've had in a long time, in which panel <laughs> does a performance studies history of his hobby, 
<laughs> I, I could, by the way, I could so, do that for all. I can do that for all of my hobbies, I, and I have. I don't a lot doubt of it. I don't. I don't. I, I. I don't doubt it at all. I'm. I'm. This has now reached the level of gobsmack above above the Heidi thing. So I'm. I'm. I'm, I'm, I'm totally in love. I think this is really, really quite great. I'm glad you appreciate it. Yeah. No. Sarah. Wonderful draft. Thank you. Thank you. Well. Well. Um, Sarah is consumed by her reveries. Harvey, what is your draft? Uh, my draft is. Um, based on tenure promotion guidelines and within theater performance studies. I'm wondering if it's time nice. for us to abandon the expectation that a person uh, writes a book or that the book is the cornerstone, the, 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 the key part of a promotion dossier. Like, why not place an emphasis on articles? I mean, the reality is uh, articles circulate much more widely uh, and broadly than they, than they used to, thanks to uh, the circulation of you know e-journals and the availability of print journals you know online and digitally, uh, you know I think more journals are being cited than ever before. Um, you know they're certainly being assigned uh, much more in classrooms than books are. You know so you know why continue to you know like create expectation that everyone writes a book uh, yeah. and instead let's just shift things uh, toward kind of a social science model where maybe we prioritize uh, and, and set expectation that, you know, a certain number or a wealth of articles, you know, go out into the world. And then later on, if a person chooses to write a book, so be it. Uh, but, you know, not everyone has to write a book for their career to progress. Yeah, I, I'm very much on your side for this. I think it's a it's part of the manifestation of just tenure and promotion committees. I mean, I think it's a a kind of increasing a sort of arms race of expectations. So, you know, everyone else, the other research institutions require this, so we have to require it. It also, I think, lets the tenure and promotion committees off the hook from actually doing the reading because they're assuming that if a university press has published this, then it must be of a certain quality. It's already been vetted significantly, et cetera, et cetera. And I think not just articles, but I think, you know, obviously creative work. Like in our field, you need to be able to tenure people who have a, a range of different output and contributions so here here Harvey the one thing I would say and actually I think this might be an interesting topic to consider but the one thing I would say is to I, I don't disagree but to be mindful of the fact that I think you know some people might respond well some arguments are worthy of the long form book format like sometimes you can't you know like five articles uh, is not the same as a as a monograph and um and so, you know, it's a little bit of an apples and orange comparison there. Um, and the second is that to be very careful about the ways in which uh, the appeal of journal articles is also the way in which the, their impact can be quantified. And we have seen humanities and certainly theater performance studies in the past follow impulses of the sciences and the social sciences only to get caught up in uh, a little bit of a, a whirlpool of expectations that originated outside the discipline, but have somehow been absorbed within it. And so, I'm thinking of you know Google Scholar and H indices and things like this. You know, do we make ourselves vulnerable to certain kinds of uh, arguments of of metrics and evaluation that are perhaps maybe not necessarily about the quality of the research or the idea or the real impact in the field, but again become uh, another kind of substitute for actually engaging with the material. So that's my only, yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. know, I kind of devil's advocate real, presentation there. Yeah, it's true. They really have strong virtues, and we should write them. I think it's flexibility, you know, like the ability oh, sure. to substitute. Well, and that's not to say that a consideration and a conversation shouldn't be happening in that, you know, we. it's just to, I think, just be mindful of, of the law of unintended consequences when we start making major changes. But I think it's a cool conversation to have. Indeed, indeed. Sarah, what's your draft this this month? So I've been thinking uh, a lot about uh, performance documentation, and uh, it's why I enjoyed the big the big dance theater piece um, and sort of <laughs> recordings of this. And I, you know, the other thing I got to do when I was in New York was go to the Whitney and see the Lucinda Child, Solowit, Philip Glass um, film documentation, uh, dance notation piece, um, and uh, and it was it would happen in, con in conjunction with the Andy Warhol, which was great because Andy Warhol took up like four you know five floors, and that's where everybody went, and so I could just sit in front of and watch like this Lucinda Child's movie for four hours in a row, um, and it was just heavenly. Um, so that's my 
you know, just sort of if you if you get a chance to see that before it goes away, I highly recommend it. Um, but the other pieces that I have with some colleagues here at Bowdoin been developing a, an app for uh, for basically for like individual theater reviews. So very specifically not making it a kind of social media, but a way to kind of create your own uh, theater diary, Samuel Pepys style. Uh, and we're you know still developing it and, and getting ready to launch it. But uh, but I'm excited that we're getting pretty close on that. And so hopefully it will come out in in beta soon and 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 folks can use it to kind of play around with it it has you know it has like some pretty predictable features and then it has my own weird little idiosyncratic you know like measure the distortion of the show you just saw kind of stuff so i'm i'm excited for that i think it'll be fun that's really cool i know that one of my favorite things from archives um is the collections of theater goers from the early 20th century and late 19th century uh, with such scrapbooking uh, around theater attendance so yep. you know a 20 first century version of that you know with a twist is super exciting i think it'd be fun so yeah i'll let you know when that when that's ready to launch you will know because i will put it on every media platform screaming up and down pointing at it saying this is the coolest thing ever (laughs) yeah so it'll be hard to miss yes um sarah harvey thank you guys so much listeners thank you for downloading streaming and listening and we will have another podcast for you very soon on Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast. Podcast.